Well, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat as we uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. Uh, we're grateful that you are a good father who, uh, who gives good gifts. And, uh, and so we're grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to uh, dive into history and uh, to consider some of the successes and, uh, and failures uh, of the church. And yet, uh, in spite of all of that, uh, in your providence, you are bringing about the plan of redemption and, uh, and glorifying your son. And so pray that he might be glorified as we discuss these things this morning. We ask because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to the theological equipping class that everyone has been waiting for, right? You've heard of Martin Luther, you've heard of John Calvin, but today we get to discuss the real who's who, everyone's favorite. You get to discuss Conrad Grable and Melchior Hoffman and Michael Sadler as we're talking about the Radical Reformation and the Counter Reformation. That's what we're talking about today, the Radical Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. Remember, in the 16th century, uh, which is where we are now in our study of church history, in the 16th century, there wasn't just one sort of single stream, one monolithic reformation. There were a number of reformations. There were multiple. There was the German Reformation with guys like Luther and Melanchthon, uh, and that leads to Lutheranism. Then there's the Swiss Reformation, which is a totally separate parallel movement led by guys like Ulrich Zwingli and, uh, and John Calvin. That leads to the Reformed tradition. There's the English uh, Reformation that leads to Anglicanism. We'll actually talk about that next week. And then there are these other two Reformations. There's the Radical Reformation, and then the Catholic Counter-Reformation. That's what we want to talk about today, these final two different streams or strands uh, of the, uh, the Reformation. So what are the Radical Reformation and the, uh, the Counter-Reformation? When we say Radical Reformation, what we mean by that is we mean other Protestant refor reformers who weren't associated with the Swiss or the German Reformations. When we talk about the Reformation, we distinguish between the magisterial reformers and the radical reformers. Those are the two groups. You have the magisterial reformers, and that's guys like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and so forth, and then you have the radical reformers. They were called the magisterial uh, reformers because, in general, their reformations were somehow supported by the magistrates, by kings, by noblemen, by governors, and, and, uh, and so forth. And so those are the magisterial reformers, those whose reformations were somehow uh, supported or influenced by the magistrates. On the other hand, you have the radical reformers and their reformations were not supported by the state. They were not supported by the magistrates. In fact, that is one of the distinguishing marks of most of the radical reformers that we'll see is there is this strict separation between church and, uh, and state. So that's the radical reformation. What about the, uh, the counter-reformation? That is, uh, in general, this sort of uh, uh, Catholic response to the, uh, the Reformation. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about the Radical Reformation first, and then we'll talk about the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Those are actually uh, completely separate reformations, but we're gonna talk about them in that order. Got it? Ready? It's Father's Day. I'm wearing my shirt, which, uh, which Tim says, quote, looks like I'm in Miami, about to go to a Pitbull concert. So I'm ready to go, okay. When we talk about the, uh, the beginning of the Reformation, what date do we typically associate with that? Anybody remember? Halloween, you know what date that is? October 31st, what year, 15? 1517, that's right, all right. So a year later, a year after the formal sort of beginning of the Reformation, a year later, about 500 miles away from where Luther had posted the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, about 500 miles away, uh, a guy named Ulrich Zwingli uh, is called to serve as priest in Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, he's called to, pre, uh, to be the priest at the Grossmünster. The, that means big church. And by then, he's starting to question some of the theological assumptions of med medieval Catholicism. He's starting to question indulgences these, these, uh, and also papal ex uh, excesses and abuses. He's starting to question the exaltation of tra uh, tradition over Scripture. And then uh, Zwingli begins to attract this, uh, a bit of a following. And among his followers are two buddies named Conrad Grable and Felix, uh, Felix Manns. 
By the way, you might notice, if you look at the dates there, uh, you might notice that they died young. That's a trait of most of the radical reformers because, as we'll see, a lot of them are going to be uh, martyred. They're going to be killed. They're going to be persecuted. So from 1518 to about 1523, Zwingli is preaching there in Zurich, and he's preaching a form of protest or reform against the traditions of, uh, of the church. And that happens to match what is happening with Luther in, uh, in Germany. Although originally neither Zwingli nor Luther had heard of each other and they weren't really influenced by each other. They just happened to be these parallel Reformation movements, one in Germany, one in uh, Switzerland. But by January of 1523, after Zwingli had been preaching there for about five years, by January 1523, the Zurich Council had officially embraced Zwingli's Reformation. But Grable and, uh, and Manns, they felt like Zwingli was kind of dragging his heels a bit. They were wanting to, uh, to kind of reform a little bit faster than, uh, than the Reformation itself. They basically thought that uh, reformers like Zwingli and by this time Luther, uh, they weren't going far enough in their Reformation. Uh, they thought that uh, these reformers, the magisterial reformers, had kind of left too much of the original structure of the Catholic Church uh, standing when it should have been taken down to the studs. They wanted more radical changes. That's part of why they're called the radical uh, reformers. So to really understand the context and what's going on here, we need to understand that there is this difference in the philosophical approach of Martin Luther and uh, Ulrich Zwingli when it comes to what to prohibit or permit in the church. And Luther, in particular, he advanced what's called the normative principle. His view is that we should allow anything the Bible doesn't prohibit, whether explicitly or implicitly. So we should allow, in the context of worship, anything the Bible doesn't prohibit, whether explicitly or implicitly. So the normative principle certainly insists that churches must do what Scripture prescribes, Churches must preach, they must teach, they must sing, they must take communion, they must pray, all those kinds of things. But it also allows for other practices that are, that are not forbidden in Scripture uh, or prescribed in Scripture. For example, illustrating a sermon with a skit or maybe finger painting a, 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 a response to a Bible reading or swinging an incest, uh, incense, incest. <laughs> that's weird. Uh, swinging an incense censer. And, uh, and so th- that was uh, Luther's view, what's called the normative principle. Zwingli, on the other hand, had a different philosophy. He held to what's called the regulative principle, which says that we should reject whatever the Bible doesn't explicitly or implicitly prescribe, all right? In other words, we must worship God, not just any way that we feel is right or any way that we choose or any way that we want, but rather we should worship God in the ways that he has explicitly revealed himself and the way that he has committed commanded us to worship him. So churches shouldn't do it if God hasn't said it. Now, in general, I tend to agree with Luther in the sense that uh, you don't want to create a rule where God hasn't, but I also tend to agree with Zwingli in the sense that I think it's most beneficial for, do, uh, for a church to do what God has established. That's why I would say a church is free to have like a children's choir or to do some sort of big elaborate Christmas pageant or whatever it might be. But I don't think that's necessarily what's most edifying or encouraging for the entire body. But regardless of where you land on regulative versus normative principle, this is helpful for understanding the radical reformation. Because Grable and Mans are originally disciples of Zwingli. And remember Zwingli said we should reject whatever, the, uh, whatever practice isn't found in the Bible. So Mans. And Grable, they kind of say, um, excuse me, Ulrich, no offense, but I don't see anything in Scripture at all about infant baptism. In fact, I only see the baptism of those who profess faith. And according to some historical records, it seems as if Zwingli himself was kind of questioning the validity of infant baptism, of paedo-baptism, but he was kind of hesitant to act on it because he was fearful of the, uh, the potential implications. He was fearful in particular of civil unrest. But Grable and Mance, they didn't really care. They were like, let's Leroy Jenkins this thing. Nobody puts baby in the water. No, no city council is gonna tell me what to do. And so in the fall of 1524, Grable's wife gives birth to a son. And it's not only a church custom, but it's actually a civil law that all children are to be baptized. 
Remember, at this point in history, there is no separation of church and state. That doesn't exist as a concept. There's no country in the world that has that separation of church and state. So there's a lot of pressure to just sprinkle your baby, but they don't. They refuse. And then some of their friends also have kids, and they also refuse. So this is becoming an issue there in Zurich. So in January of 1525, the Zurich City Council, they called together a town hall where Griebel and Manns are commanded to stop teaching Bible classes and also to baptize their babies immediately or be banished from the territory. And the thought by the council is that surely this will wake them up, right? After all, if you're banished from Zurich at the time, then you're basically exiled either to Lutheran or Catholic lands and both of those were also paedo-baptist, and in some ways, they're even less tolerant than Zurich. And so the thought is that the concept or the threat of excommunication or exile is going to wake them up. So four days later, on January 21st, 1525, a dozen or so men gathered at uh, Manz's house, and they kind of decide, what are we going to do? What's going to be our uh, response? So this is January 21st, 1525, and eventually, in the context of that meeting of a dozen or so men, George Blaurock, who is a, a former Catholic priest, he stands up, and he asks Grable for baptism in the, quote, apostolic fashion meaning uh, baptism upon confession of faith in Christ. And so one by one, each of the other men join in and they are all baptized. Now at this point, they weren't immersed. They were effused or affused, which means sprinkled or, uh, or poured, because they weren't really concerned about the mode of baptism. It was instead the, the issue of timing. But later, most Anabaptists began to practice uh, baptism by immersion. And this practice of adult baptism, of, of baptism upon confession of faith, gave birth to the name Anabaptists. The word Anabaptist means rebaptizers, all right? So the radical reformers are Anabaptists, they're rebaptizers. All of these men had been quote unquote baptized as infants, so they were now being quote unquote rebaptized as adults. And the reason I did quote unquote is because the Anabaptists themselves, they would have absolutely rejected the title of Anabaptists. They said, We aren't rebaptizing anyone because infant baptism isn't baptism. Because baptism, by definition, is a sign that's only applied to those who have already experienced regeneration as evidenced by a profession of faith. So this is actually one area where Anabaptists were actually really helpful. We'll talk about a number of other areas in which they weren't helpful uh, uh, in a bit, but credit where credit is due. Back to the story. The council has already said that the troublemakers must baptize their, their babies immediately or be exiled. So in response, these guys get together and what do they do? They not only don't baptize their babies, but they do, quote unquote, rebaptize themselves. They kind of double down on their disobedience. But they don't want to cause too much trouble, so they actually leave Zurich and they go to a town called Zolikon. I don't know how to pronounce that. Zolikon, Zolikon. Unfortunately, Zolikon is less than four miles away, so the, Z- uh, the Zurich City Council sent officers to arrest the men, uh, to arrest these Anabaptist traitors. So they're arrested and they're imprisoned. And they're imprisoned for a short time, but when they get out, they immediately begin to go to neighboring towns and to convince others of their ways, to convince others to repent of paedo-baptism and to embrace this uh, confessors or credo-baptism. So by March 1526, uh, a little over a year later, Zurich has had enough. So they say that anyone who's found rebaptizing or teaching rebaptism would be put to death. And the mode by which they would be put to death, anyone want to guess? Drowning. The idea is uh, you want to be immersed in water? Here you go. All that, uh, all that you want and more. And then on uh, January the, the 5th, 1527, they make good on that threat as Felix Manns is the first Anabaptist martyr. And the result of this intense persecution there in Zurich is that within four years, this Anabaptist movement in and around Zurich was uh, basically eradicated. But as tends to happen, the persecution doesn't really uh, eliminate the problem. It just kind of spreads it out. Uh, Many of those who left Zurich then flee to Germany or to Austria, but things weren't much better for them there. Remember, at this point, all of Europe is Christianized, 
and the only forms of Christianity that exist are Catholic or Reformed or Lutheran, and all of those are paedobaptistic. So in uh, 1529, the imperial diet of Spire uh, uh, proclaimed Anabaptism a heresy. And this being an imperial council, that means that every single court in the Holy Roman Empire is obliged to condemn these heretics to death. And because of the overlap between church and state, this is not only heretical, it's also seditious. It's also an act of treason, which means that every, not only every civil court, but every ecclesiastical or civil authority also has both the right and the responsibility to detain and punish these offenders. And what's the result of this decision? Well, it's estimated that some 4,000 to 5,000 Anabaptists are executed, some by water, some by, uh, some by fo- uh, fire, others by sword. But to give you kind of a scope of how severe this persecution was, some estimates say that this was approximately the same number uh, as were martyred in the first few centuries of the church by the Roman Empire. Now, this is obviously not a great period in church history. In general, I'm not a fan of killing heretics, although we do live in a a different cultural context. But I do want to point out this wasn't just an issue of baptism. That wasn't the only thing going on here. So don't put yourself in the shoes of the Anabaptists just because you happen to agree with them on credo-baptism, on believer's baptism. Don't think, because I agree with them on that, therefore I am Anabaptist. That's not the case at all. There were some really weird teachings that caused such a strong response against the Anabaptists by the Catholics and the other Protestant traditions, but we'll get to that. For now, it's enough to simply note uh, that they were uh, persecuted for a whole host of theological issues, some of them very severe, uh, uh, as they disagreed with not only uh, Catholicism, but also Lutheranism and other Reformed Protestant uh, traditions. So lots of Anabaptists were persecuted, lots were martyred, but again, persecution doesn't really extinguish the flames, it simply spreads them out. This in particular forces Anabaptism to the north into somewhat more theologically uh, lax, more, more tolerant lands uh, of what is today the, the Czech Republic. At the time, it was called Bohemia and Moravia. And then others flee to Strasbourg, Strasbourg on the uh, French-German bo- uh, border. You might remember Strasbourg. That was the place that Calvin always wanted to go to and do ministry there, but he kept being called back into uh, to Geneva. And, uh, and so there in Strasbourg, there's a guy named Melchior Hoffman, all right, and he was gaining in popularity, and he was sympathetic to the uh, the Anabaptist views. He's a really interesting fellow, uh, Melchior Hoffman is. He he was first Catholic because everybody was originally a, a Catholic before the Reformation. Then he kind of converts when he hears Luther's teachings. He converts to a Lutheran position, and then sometime later after that, he switches from Lutheranism to Zwingli's view. And then later after that, he switches from Zwingli's view to Anabaptism. So he kind of takes the motto of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, quite literally. He never stops reforming. He just continues to switch. And uh, he had some really weird views, uh, like the idea that Christ's humanity wasn't derived from Mary, uh, that Christ didn't have earthly flesh. He had, uh, quote unquote, celestial flesh. And he also has this uh, apocalyptic fever. Melchior Hoffman does. He has some visions, and in those visions, he declares that the Lord will return in 1533, and the Lord is going to establish the new Jerusalem in Strasbourg. But first, he says, as part of his prediction, his prophecy, that he is going to be imprisoned for six months, and then the end is going to come. Then Jesus is going to return and establish the new Jerusalem in Strasbourg. And what do you know? Sure enough, he is actually imprisoned. So what do you think happens? Well, people begin to flock to Strasbourg from all around, right? The clock is ticking. They have six months and then Jesus is coming. People don't want to miss it. So people are coming from all over the empire to Strasbourg. But six months pass and do you think Jesus returned? No, he didn't, right? The apocalypse doesn't happen. So people began to say Melchior Hoffman is a false prophet. No, they don't say that. People never say that. Instead, they say, well, he got the date wrong or he got the place wrong, or something like that. In particular, it, it isn't necessarily going to happen now. It's going to happen soon, and it, maybe it's not going to happen in Strasbourg, but instead they get out a little you know, uh, globe, and they spin it, and they put their finger in there. That's going to happen in Munster, 
which is a city in western Germany near the Netherlands. They just kind of keep, uh, keep pushing the goalpost. This is really popular throughout church history, right? No matter how many times the Bible says, don't try to predict the date of Christ's return, there's going to be someone who says, I think I should try to predict the date of Christ's return. And that's Melchior Hoffman. So everyone eventually goes off to Munster, except Hoffman, he's still in prison. And, uh, and then Munster is going to be really important because it will be at this site where there will be this huge turning point in the history of Anabaptism. To this point, most Europeans, many Europeans don't know much about Anabaptism, but after Munster, the name Anabaptist will have this foul smell to the average uh, 16th century European. So let's back up to 1532. In the town of Munster, the Lutheran Reformation begins to spread through uh, the city. That's 1532. But there is this power struggle that erupts because the entire city doesn't necessarily experience reformation, but there is this power struggle between uh, the Lutherans and the Catholics, all right? There's this power struggle between Protestants and Catholics, so there's a degree of religious tolerance, all right? Each side is kind of vying for others to come and to support their cause, and so it seems to be a right place for the Anabaptists to land because it's a place where there's a degree of religious toleration. And, uh, and so uh, the Anabaptists who are fleeing from Strasbourg when they realize that Hoffman's prediction hasn't come true, they go to Munster. And a guy named John Mathis, who's a disciple of Hoffman's, he leads the Anabaptist, <coughs> excuse me, he leads the Anabaptist movement there in the city. And he begins to teach a few things. He begins to teach that, uh, that Christians should share a kind of commonality of goods he begins to teach baptism of adults by immersion. That's kind of a, a, a consistent theme of Anabaptism. And he also begins to teach polygamy. Why polygamy? Hang on, we'll come back and that'll make sense in a second. But this particular strand of Anabaptism really put the radical in the Radical Reformation and there's a bit of an uprising against the city authorities there in Munster. So the Catholic bishop he, uh, the Catholic bishop of the region, he masses some troops to kind of put down this, this Anabaptist rebellion. And the thought at the time is that this is going to be a really short and sweet uh, process. Why is that? Well, because one of the distinguishing marks of Anabaptists is because they generally adhere to strict pacifism. That's like Anabaptism 101. We don't bear arms. We don't join the military. We don't fight back. We'll talk about that when we discuss their theology. So the Catholics think that the Anabaptists won't retaliate, that they won't fight back. But apparently this particular group didn't get the make love, not war memo, and they actually do fight back. And in the struggle between the Catholics and, uh, and the Anabaptists, the leader Mathis is killed. But by 1534, the Anabaptists have actually taken control of the city, and they actually hold it for a year. For an entire year, they actually hold the city. And during that year, uh, John of Leiden, He's a former uh, innkeeper. He seizes power and he began practicing polygamy and he took the title of King David. He told everyone that they should call him King David. Now, why polygamy? Well, during this entire year that the Anabaptists hold the city of Munster, the city was under a siege. The Catholic forces were around it. And so the entire year they were under siege and men were being killed defending the city or anytime men would leave in order to get supplies, they would be killed. So the, uh, you have this diminishing population of men. The population of women remained uh, fairly steady, but the population of men was diminishing, so it became this sort of pragmatic decision to implement polygamy. Uh, we've got more women than men, so what do we do? We start allowing each man to marry multiple women. By the way, there tends to be this really weird connection throughout church history between predicting the return of Christ and practicing polygamy. You see that throughout church history with guys like David Koresh and, and so forth. So if anyone ever tells you, I know when Jesus is coming back, you just ask them, how many wives do you have, right? It's a good question. Now during this time, this year, that the Anabaptists are holding the city of Munster, uh, moderate Protestants, that is any Protestant who wasn't an Anabaptist, they were forced out of the city and also, the Anabaptists went around destroying sculptures and paintings. Why do they do that? Because, again, they had this extreme view that whatever is not commanded is therefore prohibited. Since God doesn't command sculptures, God doesn't command paintings, then they got to go. 
And then over the course of the year, people are starving to death. So eventually, tired of all the craziness, someone ends up opening the gates and lets the Catholic bishop and his army in, and they end up retaking the city. Meanwhile, Melchior Hoffman, he's back in Strasbourg. He's still back in prison. In fact, he never gets out. He eventually dies there in 1543. But this event in Munster is called the Munster Rebellion. And this event is going to forever taint the name of Anabaptism, so much so that when Europeans hear the word Anabaptist or Anabaptism, they immediately are going to think of the, the radical fanaticism that they saw in Munster. They're also going to have this connotation or association uh, back to something called the Peasants' War, which actually took place 10 years prior to Munster. We just haven't had a chance to talk about it uh, yet. So the Peasants' War was this event that took place in the modern German area uh, of the Holy Roman Empire. It was about 1524-1525. This is one of the uh, largest uh, popular uh, uprisings in European history. Eventually, somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 peasants are going to be killed. If you study Luther, you end up learning a lot about the Peasants' War because though he didn't support the rebellion, it was his writings which actually kind of provide some of the, the fuel to the flame. And he kind of did an about face at some point, all right? Originally, he kind of supported the peasants, but then he kind of changed his mind. He wrote that the nobles had every right and authority to kill the rebels, why did Luther kind of change his mind? Because he realized that although tyranny is bad, anarchy was even worse. Now, the Peasants' War wasn't really an Anabaptist revolt, right? It's not actually Anabaptists who were doing this, uh, this revolt. It was more political and social than it was theological. But the reason that it's been associated with Anabaptism is because Anabaptist leaders were, uh, were involved in the revolt, all right, so that taints the name of Anabaptism. One of the Anabaptist leaders who were actually popular in this uprising was a guy named Thomas Munster. Uh, Munster uh, might be pronounced. Munster was an interesting character. He was originally actually an acquaintance of Luther, and they actually kind of liked each other. In fact, Luther recommended him to a post in the city of Zwickau. But any love between the two would quickly dissipate as, as Munster would become a fierce critic of not only Roman Catholicism, but also uh, Luther. And then while he's in Zwickau, Munster was, uh, was associated with a group called the Zwickau Prophets. And the Zwickau Prophets claimed that the Spirit was speaking to ordinary people and that that speech to ordinary people was more authoritative than Scripture's. All right, and that group's relationship to Anabaptism is a bit sketchy. It seems to me that they were just kind of parallel movements. Munster happened to be an Anabaptist and he happened to be in Zwickau the same time the Zwickau prophets uh, were there. But there is this relationship between Anabaptism and this subjectivity that you'll see throughout uh, uh, church history, right? There is this, uh, there's this uh, virus that replicates within Anabaptism that's kind of manifest in this strange view of prophecy that involves, uh, on one hand, predicting the return of Christ, we saw that, and on the other hand, kind of supplanting the sufficiency of Scripture. Not all Anabaptists did that, but many of them did, uh, enough that you see this subjectivity in general in a lot of, uh, of Anabaptism. They kind of reformed beyond the Reformation. The Reformation was, in, in essence, an exaltation of the authority of Scripture over tradition, what uh, some, many Anabaptists actually did is they not only kind of denigrated the role of tradition, but also denigrate the role of Scripture and instead are going to exalt the role of uh, human feeling and subjectivity and so forth. And we'll see that even more clearly as we look at the Enlightenment uh, next semester. But regardless, with this Munster Rebellion and with the Peasants' Revolt in people's uh, minds, uh, that kind of left a bad taste in people's mouth. And thus ended the kind of really radical revolutionary strand of Anabaptism, all right? The, uh, the we're going to revolt, we're going to have an uprising, that kind of thing kind of dies there after, uh, after Munster. But Anabaptism itself didn't die. Instead, it just kind of morphed. So people began to ask, why had Anabaptism failed in Munster? And the answer that they came up with was because they had kind of forgotten their underlying principle of pacifism. 
This was particularly the view of a guy named Minnow Simmons. Minnow Simmons, who was a former Catholic priest. He had been uh, influenced by the teachings of, uh, of Hoffman, Melchior Hoffman. And around the time that Munster finally fell in 1536, uh, uh, Simmons began working as an itinerant evangelist for the Anabaptist cause. He then establishes this settlement along the Lower Rhine in the Netherlands. And then Simmons is going to be the stabilizing force for Anabaptism. He's going to kind of give shape to much of its theological distinctives. But in particular, it was Minnow Simmons' views of absolute pacifism that marks him out. In fact, many Anabaptists today are called what? Minnow you heard anything? Mennonites, right? Uh, because of the influence of Minnow Simmons. So either, even though he wasn't the founder of Anabaptism, uh, Anabaptism today is associated with his name because he had such a strong influence, in particular in regards to the, uh, the role of pacifism. So let's talk a little bit about the theological distinctives of the, uh, the Anabaptists. And when we think about or we talk about the Anabaptists today, most of us really, if we were honest, don't have much of a clue about what they believe or who they are, right? You might be familiar with the Mennonites. Maybe you're familiar with the Amish. And thus, whenever you think of the Anabaptists, you have a picture of you know, women wearing bonnets, men with really long beards, uh, no automobiles or whatever it might be. And those are certainly strands or strains of Anabaptism, but the movement itself is really diverse. It, there's no sort of unify, unifying organization. So there are a number of different strands and each of them have really unique theological philosophical distinctives. In general, historians are gonna note three main strands. Three main strands. And there's uh, all kinds of substrands within each. Those three strands are the radicals. That includes those who rebelled in the Munster Rebellion and so forth. So you have a really radical group of Anabaptists. Then you have another group who are the rationalists. You have a, a group of Anabaptists who deny the Trinity. They have these anti-Trinitarian uh, anti heretics. And then you also have what are called the Orthodox. They're generally uh, towards the center of orthodoxy but disagreed on a handful of doctrines like baptism, the relationship of state and church, pacifism, and, uh, and so forth. But they're generally Orthodox. They have Orthodox views of Christ and uh, the Trinity and, uh, and so forth. So as you can imagine, this makes any sort of summary really difficult, right? It makes it uh, difficult not only today, it made it extremely difficult in the 16th century. If you were to meet a particular anti-Trinitarian Anabaptist, then you might then think all Anabaptists were, or Anabaptists were, uh, rejected the Trinity, all right? Or you might meet a rather Orthodox group and think that in general, Anabaptists just disagree on baptism and church and state and pacifism or something like that. But in reality, Anabaptism is this really diverse movement. So I'm gonna give some general uh, distinctives, uh, but these aren't true for each and every radical uh, reformer. But a group of Anabaptists, they meet in a, a city called Schleitheim in Switzerland in 1527, and they draft what's called the Schleitheim Confession under the leadership of a guy named Michael Sattler. Michael Sattler would actually be martyred three months after writing this document. And this statement is gonna express sort of a general overview of agreement with most of the radical reformers, at least the orthodox branch of the radical reformers. In fact, this is actually seen as a guiding document uh, for many Anabaptist communities today. So it's written back in 1527. It's still a guiding document for many Anabaptists uh, today. So the, the Schleitheim Confession isn't this theological comprehensive treatise. Instead, it just kind of offers convictions on seven particular areas where it disagreed with the magisterial reformation. It doesn't have things about Trinity or deity of Christ because they were orthodox in those things. It just offers these seven areas where they are actually different from the magisterial uh, reformers, all right? Schleitheim. These are the seven areas of difference. The first one, believers, baptism. From Article 1, baptism shall be given to all those who have learned repentance and amendment of life and who believe truly that their sins are taken away by Christ and to all those who walk in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and wish to be buried with him in death so that they may be resurrected with him and to all those who with this significance... Uh, request of us and demand it for themselves. This excludes all infant baptism, the highest and chief abomination of the Pope. All right? So in general, that would be a fairly good statement. I wouldn't say necessarily the highest and chief abomination of the Pope, but in general, that's a fairly 
a standard statement that we would actually agree with here. The second thing that was a distinctive of the Anabaptists there at Schleitheim was the idea of excommunication for disobedient members. If you're a fan of The Office, all right, the American version of The Office, there's a character who grew up in a German-speaking Amish community. Anybody remember his name? Dwight Schrute, that's right. And he talks about being shunned from the ages of four to six, all right? He was shunned, I think, for uh, wasting oil from a tuna can or something like that. Well, shunning or quote unquote the ban is, uh, is basically like excommunication. That was the second distinctive of the Schleitheim Confession. The person is no longer considered a part of the community and they're forbidden from the Lord's table unless or until he or she repents, all right? So that's the second distinctive of the Schleidheim Confession. A third distinctive is a memorial view of communion. In this, what they're doing is they're explicitly rejecting the Catholic view of transubstantiation and they're also rejecting the Lutheran view of consubstantiation, but they're actually kind of pretty aligned with Swingley's views on, uh, on communion. Fourth is a physical separation from worldliness, right? A physical separation from worldliness. Why is it that Amish communities tend to live together in cloisters today? Why do they have their own distinct communities? Because that's one of the theological distinctives of, uh, of this form of Anabaptism. Not merely do you withdraw from sin, not merely do you withdraw from worldliness, but there is this idea that you actually withdraw from the world. If you recall, in 1 Corinthians 5, we talked about the fact that, that Paul says not to associate with the sexually immoral, and then he clarifies that, and he says not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, for then you would have to go out of the world. But that's not what the uh, Anabaptists believe. Basically, what the Anabaptists do is say, we're going to go out of the world. We're not going to associate with the sexually immoral, whether they're believers or unbelievers, right? They withdraw not merely from worldliness, meaning sin, but from the world itself. That's the fourth distinctive. Fifth, there's instructions about how to choose pastors and what they are to do in leading the church. That's not as, uh, as fascinating. Number six, governmental non-participation and strict pacifism. So according to Schleitheim and many Anabaptist communities today, Anabaptists can't fight back, they can't go to war, they can't defend themselves, but they also can't serve in any sort of political office. They can't vote, they can't do anything like that. There's this really strict boundary in Anabaptism between the church and the state, and there's no overlap whatsoever, right? Whereas medieval Catholicism, many of the magisterial reformers viewed church and state as almost interchangeable, what the Anabaptists do is they're going to swing the pendulum too far. In separating those, they're going to draw this strict line of separation between the two, rather than what we would say is that you should wear both your hat as a citizen and as a Christian. You never take off your Christian hat, but you still wear your citizen hat. You do things like vote, and you can be, uh, uh, you could be a governor, or you could be a president or something like that, and still be a uh, Christian. That's not what the Anabaptists believe. And by the way, this was the issue that got the Anabaptists in trouble. It wasn't necessarily their, issue, their uh, doctrine of, uh, of baptism or anything like that. It was this that got them in the most trouble uh, because it meant that they were implicitly encouraging treason. They were telling people, don't serve in the military, even though you're called by your feudal lord or whatever it might be to be in the military. Don't... Uh, serve in office, don't support the government, don't do any of these things, don't pay taxes, whatever it might be. So that was the sixth. And then the seventh is uh, that they forbid the swearing of oaths of any kind. They took that very literally when Jesus says, don't uh, take any oaths. And so those are the seven uh, principles or distinctives of Schleidheim. Now, there are a, certainly some good things that are associated with Anabaptism. They were kind of the first to really get baptism right in, uh, in over a millennia. They tried to reform the morals of the church. They tried to call people to actual discipleship. They preached a degree of religious liberty and the right to worship with neither state support nor persecution. So there were some good things, but there were also a lot of problems with the movement. I'll just give a few examples. Number one, as you can imagine, they tended to be very legalistic. Right? Remember, they would encourage you to withdraw not merely from sin, but to withdraw from sinners. Not merely from worldliness, but from the world. This is why there are these cloisters of communal living. Number two, along with that isolation, they tended to eventually lose their evangelistic zeal. 
You saw originally Anabaptists would go out and they would try to convince people of their views. Eventually, they kind of just circle the wagons. They're so, they're, they kind of have uh, you know, PTSD. They've been persecuted so much that uh, they begin to be afraid and they just kind of circle the wagons and they no longer try to reach the world. Number three, there's this overly literal hermeneutic. It doesn't take into account the theological context of Scripture. So Christ's commands about turning the other cheek, they kind of universalize that. They absolutize that. They say there's no exceptions whatsoever where you shouldn't turn the cheek. It doesn't matter if you're a police officer or whatever it might be because you can't be a police officer for an Anabaptist. So, uh, so the same about his command about oaths, right? You're not literally ever allowed to take an oath. You couldn't place your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So one of the interesting practices that develops in many Anabaptist communities is literal foot washing, which speaks to this problem of this overly literal hermeneutic, right? What is the point of foot washing? Yeah, to humility or to serve or, or to show, uh, uh, you know, that you serve one another and love one another and, uh, and so forth. So let me ask you this. If I were to invite you over to my house and you come over to my house and I say, hey, take your shoes off. I don't wash your feet. Do you feel loved? Do you feel served? <laughs> Somebody said yes. <laughs> no, you probably don't. You probably feel this is weird. This guy's a creep, right? Why is he doing this, all right? And, uh, and so that's not the point. The same is true for the idea of like holy kisses, right? You read in the scripture, we should greet one another with a holy kiss, all right? But the point of that is to welcome you, to show that I love you and so forth. But if I invite you into my house and then I put my lips on your wife, you don't feel loved. You don't feel welcomed, right? And so by actually carrying out the literal command, you actually break the principle of the command. And that's what the Anabaptists are going to miss out on. They're so literal about it that they miss out on the theological context uh, of it. So the principle is actually going to be unchanging from culture to culture, uh, but the actual application of it is going to change as culture changes. So in some cultures, the, the proper way to greet somebody might be with a kiss. In others, it might be a you know, a fist bump or a handshake or a high five or a hug or whatever it might be. So one of the things you note in reading many of the Anabaptists is that they, uh, they have this hermeneutic that suggests that we should, uh, uh, that we should uh, obey a text before we understand it. In fact, they would say you can only understand it once you've obeyed it, which is exactly backward. Right? That's exactly backward. Unless you understand it, you don't know how to actually uh, obey it. Right? That's why we see such a problem in our culture today in regards to issues of, uh, of race or gender or whatever it might be. It's because people are reacting. They're trying to obey a command before they've actually understood what that uh, command is. So you see this pious, uh, at least superficially pious uh, spirituality in many Anabaptists that actually is going to lead them to subjectivity, which is why there's such an emphasis on hearing the voice of the Lord in some manner other than scripture, through dreams or visions or whatever it might be. So that's a, a third sort of, uh, of critique of the Anabaptists is that there is this overly literal hermeneutic. And then lastly, there's certainly other theological issues. Many of the Anabaptist communities were egalitarian in their practice of gender roles. They would uh, allow women to serve in roles that the scripture would deny. Some Anabaptist groups denied Christ's humanity. Others were non-Trinitarian. But again, that's painting with a broad brush. Certainly not true of all. And so those are some of the critiques. That's what the, uh, the uh, radical reformers were and a little history of them and some of what they believe and, uh, and some critiques. And with that, let's move to the counter-reformation, the Catholic counter-reformation. The first thing you need to know about the Catholic counter-reformation is that this is actually a really bad name for it. It sounds like when we talk about the Catholic counter-reformation, it sounds like it's just a reaction to Protestantism. It's just a reaction, a counter-reformation, a reaction to the Reformation, when in reality, that's not really the whole story. Remember, there's a whole lot of problems in the Catholic Church in the 16th century. The church is reeling from a period that Luther called the Babylonian captivity of the church in which the papacy has moved from Rome to Avignon, France for 70 years. For 70 years, the Pope is not in the place that by definition the Pope has to be, the city of Rome. Immediately after that 70 years, there's this great schism 
for 40 years in which there uh, is not just one pope, but there's two. And then for a period of time, there's even three popes all at once. So you've got that in the very recent past. And in the present, in the 16th century, you have rampant absenteeism. Priests are deriving their income from a church, but they never actually go to that church. And then you have uh, simony in which people are buying church offices and there's illiterate and uneducated clergy. And then there's general immorality that rises even to the top of the Catholic hierarchy. Popes who are guilty of murdering other popes. Popes who are committing adultery and fornication and homosexuality. So this is a really dark period in, uh, in the history of the church. So for years, there were various attempts at reforming the church. We might even think of the actual Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, as this Catholic Reformation that simply outgrew the Roman Catholic Church, whereas the Catholic Reformation was reform that was able to fit within the contours of the church. So there's a sense in which the quote-unquote counter-reformation was well underway already when Luther is a boy, not only with guys like John Huss, John Wycliffe that we've already talked about, but even by those who were fully immersed in Roman Catholicism. But more of those, most of those reforms, uh, reforms weren't theological in nature. Instead, they were moral. They were trying to reform the morality or the general immorality of the church. And as has been the case from the early days of the church, some attempted to reform by means of either reforming established monastic orders or creating new ones. You'll see that throughout the history of the church is that in response to immorality, there is always this branch that wants to just kind of go out in the desert and start a monastic community. So there are two new monastic orders, at least, that are born in this period of Catholic reform. And those are called the Discalced Carmelites and the Jesuits. Or the Jesuits, right? The Discalced Carmelites were founded by Teresa of Avila, who had a vision in which she was told, fear not, for I will be to you like an open book. So she starts this group called the Discalced Carmelites. Carmelites after Mount Carmel, where Elijah heard the still small voice of the Lord, and then Discalced, which means barefoot, because her followers uh, wore sandals rather than shoes. And they were known in particular for devoting themselves to prayer. And then they were also known because Teresa was known for having a bit of, uh, she, was being, she was known for being a bit feisty. She was joined in her efforts by a guy named St. John of the Cross, and he was kind of a, you know, rather short man. And so her response was, uh, Lord, I asked you for a man or for a monk and you sent me half of one. Now, those were the Discalced Carmelites. This is a new monastic community that grow, grows up then. The others, the other that I want to mention are the Jesuits, all right, founded by uh, Ignatius of Lo- Loyola. If you ever wonder why schools were uh, with Loyola, Lo- Loyola in their title are Catholic, this is the reason. Ignatius, originally, he wants to be a military man. He wants military glory, but he's wounded in battle. In fact, he's, uh, he's so badly wounded that his leg is almost completely destroyed, and he'll walk with a noticeable limp for the rest of his life. But while he's convalescing, while he's healing, he reads this, uh, a couple of books about, uh, about Catholic mystics and monks, and he decides that they are really the real uh, heroes, not warriors, and so he starts a monastic order. And the original goal is that they would be working as missionaries among the Turks in the Holy Lands, but by the time the Pope actually approves them as a new order, Protestantism was a bigger threat. So the Jesuits become this main line of defense against Protestant theology. In addition to that, the Jesuits, there's some evidence to suggest that the Jesuits functioned as assassins for the Pope. This is like Zach's dream job, right? Talking theology, killing heretics, and that's the Jesuits. So again, these early reform efforts weren't merely or weren't primarily theological, but rather they were moral. But then the Reformation breaks out and suddenly Catholic reformers are having to fight on two fronts. They have to try to reform Roman Catholic morals while at the same time defending Roman Catholic tradition. That's the challenge for the Counter-Reformation. Now, when the Protestant Reformation first begins, Luther calls for a church council. In fact, many voices have been calling for a church council, but only a church, uh, I'm sorry, only a pope actually had the authority to call a church council, and popes weren't too keen on the idea. Why weren't they too keen on the idea? Because they remembered that the last time there was a church council that was called, it actually deposed the sitting pope. And so they didn't want to do that. So the popes feared this sort of conciliatory power, the power of councils. In other words, those who were most necessary to really reform the church were the ones who were most resistant 
to reform. They had this vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And so when the, when the Reformation begins, Leo X is Pope. As we mentioned before, he's kind of too distracted to take the Protestants seriously. It's like uh, Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride, right? I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, Gilder to blame for it. I'm swamped, right? That's Leo. He's trying to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. He's he's, uh, offering indulgences to raise the funds. He's trying to start a crusade against the Turks. He's furthering the interests of the House of Medici. He is far too busy to actually uh, enact any reform. After Leo... There's Adrian VI, who actually was a fan of reform, but he dies uh, unexpectedly. And so the next is Clement VII. He's the cousin of Leo. And during his papacy, England declares independence, and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V sacks Rome. So uh, Clement's hands are full, and he can't bring about any reform. Finally, after him is Paul III. And he's appointed, and he convokes the Council of Trent in 1545. This, this is the official church response to the Reformation, the, ofis, uh, the official Catholic church response to the Reformation. So when did the Protestant Reformation start? What year? 1517, all right? For the next few decades, there are these attempts at reconciliation. At this point, there is hope that there's not gonna be this permanent breach Uh, that's going to be made. It's like a big game of chicken, right? The Protestants are hoping that the Catholics are going to turn. The Catholics are hoping that the Protestants are going to turn. Neither actually does. And by the late 1530s, the prospect of this permanently divided Christendom was dawning on everybody. But there's this final last-ditch Hail Mary, no pun intended, effort at reunification at Worms in 1541. And, uh, And so, but uh, as was the case at Luther's standoff at Worms, there was not an agreement. So it now becomes obvious to everyone that there's not going to be a healing in the rift between Protestantism and, uh, and uh, Catholicism. And so the Catholics decide we have to have a council where we're going to actually establish what it is that makes us distinct. By the 1540s, it's obvious there's permanent division. So in 1545, the Catholic Church produced an index of prohibited books which included everything by the reformers and also any Protestant Bibles, all right? To possess any of those books was punishable by death, and that list would continue to be updated until uh, 1959 when it was finally abolished. That's 1545. Later that year, the Pope is going to finally convene the council in Trent in northern Italy in December, and that would meet on and off for various reasons until 1563, There were less than 50 attendees at the first session and more than 200 at the final. And its goal was twofold. It wanted to, on one hand, uh, it wanted to extirpate the extirpation of heresies, and then it also wanted to reform the morals of the church. And from a Roman Catholic perspective, uh, a Roman Catholic would say it actually accomplished both. It was a highly significant council from a Roman Catholic perspective. In fact, it's viewed as the 19th ecumenical council of the church. Remember, Protestants accept the first six councils, Nicaea, Chalcedon, and, uh, and so forth. E- the Eastern Orthodox accept a seventh council as well, but Catholics have dozens of other councils that they consider to be uh, ecumenical and authoritative, and Trent is one of those. As it relates to moral reforms, Trent introduced a number of changes. For example, it condemned the practice of absenteeism in which uh, uh, bishops were residing somewhere other than the area where they were serving. It condemned pluralism in which people would hold multiple offices in multiple churches. It condemned simony, the selling of church offices. It regulated but didn't condemn the use of relics and indulgences. In fact, it damned anyone who would say that indulgences are useless or that the church doesn't have the power to grant them. So it explicitly said, indulgences are good. It just regulated their uses. It listed and defined the obligations of clergy, and then it also ordered the founding of seminaries. Until then, there was no universal educational requirements to be ordained as a priest, but at this point, it prescribes education as a requirement for ordination, so there's no more illiterate, uneducated clergy. So those are the moral reforms. And all those things, I would say, in general, those are good. But what about the theological stuff? What about the, quote, extirpation of heresies? Well, think about everything that makes you distinctly Protestant. Justification by faith, Scripture as the only uh, ultimate authority, Scripture translated in the common tongue, all of that, 
All of that is anathema, according to Trent. Literally, every one of those things, for believing any of those things, then uh, you would have been officially and formally damned by the Roman Catholic Church. Up to this point, a lot of what the reformers were saying was basically way outside the bounds of normal Roman Catholic Church teaching, but most of those things had never been officially dogmatized. So Trent is the church's making explicit what was previously implicit. It, just, it could have just condemned Protestantism uh, just, just universally and just said, we condemn everything the Protestants believe, but it didn't do that. Instead, it went line by line over each and every Protestant claim and condemned them one by one. So I read over Trent this past week in preparation for this lesson. It's like 40 pages. That's a fun read. It's literally just reading nonstop how I'm damned, Right. I'm cut off from Christ. Just about everything I love, everything I treasure, besides like the Trinity and person of Christ, is condemned. For example, it declares the Vulgate. That's the Latin translation uh, of the Bible. It declares that to be the authoritative text in matters of dogma. And in doing so, it officially canonized the Apocrypha. Before that, it had never been officially declared to be part of the canon. So it says, if anyone received not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts as they have been used uh, to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition and knowingly and deliberately condemn the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema. Second, it officially stated that tradition has a parallel authority to Scripture. Third, it stated that the proper number of sacraments is seven. Fourth, it stated that the Mass is a true sacrifice of Christ and confirmed, confirmed the doctrine of transubstantiation and that Mass can be offered on behalf of the dead. Fifth, it officially damned anyone who denied the necessity of purgatory for believers. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out, that there remains no debt of temporal punishment to be discharged in this world or the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. Six, it established that justification is based on good works done through the collaboration of grace and the believer. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased, that's justification is preserved and increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof. Let him be anathema. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Seventh, it condemned the idea of assurance of salvation. If anyone says that a man born again and justified is found to believe that he is one of the predestined, let him be anathema. There's a lot more. If you do agree with infant baptism, damned. If you believe in predestination, hell. If you disagree with the church, straight to hell, right? If there's any thought that the Catholic Church would actually listen to the critiques of the reformers and actually change their minds on church tradition, that's quickly seen as naive. Instead, they passionately reject Protestantism on all fronts. And again, at this point, the schism is manifest as being this permanent divide. And from here on out, the church, which was originally one, and then in the 11th century became two, you have Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, it now becomes three. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism, although Protestantism itself will uh, fracture dozens of times. But that's the Catholic Reformation, the Counter-Reformation. Successful in reforming some of the moral excesses and abuses, and from a Catholic perspective, successful in regards to defending Catholic do uh, dogma. But from a Protestant perspective, it's merely successful in formalizing these doctrinal errors which were uh, previously implicit and uh, crept into the church. What's fascinating and really interesting is that technically all of those anathemas, all of those things that Trent damned, those have never actually formally been revoked. So there's this weird historical reality that Protestants are till, still technically still under this Catholic judgment of condemnation. But what's really interesting is post-Vatican II, we're considered, quote, separated brothers. So we're somehow anathematized, we're damned, we're condemned, but we're also separated brothers, which is super inconsistent, but who needs consistency, I guess. All right, with that in mind, sorry we didn't have time for questions. Let me pray. If you have any questions, feel free to send us an email or come and chat. We'd love to, to help out. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, church history. I thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to see uh, guys uh, who ran the race well and others that didn't, and so that we might learn from their example and, uh, and be strengthened accordingly. I pray that you would, uh, would bless us. I'm grateful for the blessing of the Reformation. In spite of some of the excesses and some of the abuses, uh, in general, it was a great thing that restored uh, the primacy of your word and the glory of your son. And, uh, and so we're grateful for that reality and that we get to stand uh, downstream from that and uh, we're not having to fight on the same fronts that they were. And so I pray that you would continue to, to bless us, help us to be reformed, ever reforming by the glory of your word. Uh, we pray these things for our joy and for your name. And uh, we pray it in Christ's name, amen.